Yo, this is Pastor Tito, and welcome to another episode of the Revolutionary Podcast. So a big theme of the Christian faith is perseverance. I mean, when you read Jesus and the Gospels and everything in the New Testament, and then you see how Israel persevered and didn't persevere in the old, it is essential. Persevering is a key theme because there is an enemy that is persistent in getting us to abandon the truth instead of abiding in it. And so let's see how this goes down in Paul's second stop on his second trip. Began this study over the last two weeks on studying Paul's second missionary journey. And uh, last week was an interesting situation. This week we're going to see another pit stop that he did. But in order to set that up, I want to set it up by acknowledging something that it's a lady, her name is a Wendy Alsup. Um, she presented this idea and I thought it was interesting. So I'm going to put it to you guys. Have you ever heard of the Christian life described as a roller coaster, right? With a bunch of ups and downs, twists and turns. You ever had one of those? I know I've kind of said that too, like thinking, oh, you know, sometimes I'm doing like really good. It's like, you know, Monday, Tuesday, I'm awesome. And oh man, and, you know, and then I have those moments of yikes and consistencies. But now we're not going to do that one. Um, have you ever heard of the Christian life being more like a merry-go-round that you just feel like it's one big circle and you're just kind of doing the same thing and the same thing or, and uh, you feel like you're not going anywhere spinning your wheels. Anybody more identify with that one? I know I've had from time to time where you feel like you're just going in the same loop and, and God's just bringing you back to the same place and learning the same lesson. And I'm like, wait a minute, what is going on? How come? I don't feel like I'm going anywhere. Well, Wendy says, it's all on your perspective. And I thought it was an interesting one she brings up in the sense of the Christian life, or she called it, um, she was bringing up sanctification, which is becoming more like Christ. This is when you are born again and you believe in Christ and now becoming more like him. It says, sanctification is not a circle, it's a spiral. In the sense of, yeah, it does seem like you're revisiting certain things, but the further you go into the spiral, you are actually getting closer to something. Which is interesting though. Uh, if I draw a spiral this way, doesn't it look like a circle? If I draw it this way, it looks like a circle. But if you spin the perspective, the circle is going somewhere. And so that makes a little bit of sense. I'm like, you know, sometimes God might bring you back to a place. And instead of you feeling, God, I, you know, why can't we just go past this? Because no, last time we were there, we, we got, but now we got to go a little deeper and a little deeper and a little deeper. And, and I like the image of a spiral, guys, because the reality is we are all in some kind of a free fall. We are all in the spiral. And what matters is, is what is at the center of the spiral? What do you believe? What are you focusing on? What are you revolving your life around? Because if you are revolving your life around the truth, then you are going to spiral down and become and let the truth sink into you and you become more like God and you become, you become uh, closer to God. But if the wrong thing is at the center, if a lie is at the center, then it is a free fall away from him uh, and you become less and less like him. So what matters and what is in the center is important because Jesus tells us, to abide in the truth. And abide is just that. It's to hang on. It's to cling, to keep going. But the enemy does not want us to abide in the truth. They want us to abandon it in favor of something else. And so what, what matters, guys, what is at the center is important. And we must be resolved to abide in this spiral of the truth. Because again, we have an enemy that is resolved to get us to abandon it for a far lesser option. And we're going to look at something that happened in, in one of Paul's shortest missionary stints in the city. That, that he and some of those church members could have abandoned it. And there was a lot of things trying to get them off track. And so, but they chose not to. And I think that's a great thing for us as well, because guys, I'm telling you, I don't care if you've been a believer in Christ Jesus. You know, if you've been a believer longer than five minutes, you know what I'm talking about in the sense that there's always something, you know, some distraction, some difficulty, something that wants to throw you off. And some of that is you, right? Sometimes it's you like, mm, I just don't feel like it, you know, I just don't feel like reading it. I don't feel like going anywhere. I don't feel like doing it, you know, whatever. Some of y'all, I, I, I applaud some of y'all that are here. Um, that actually showed up. 
Now, no shade for the people that obviously are online, but whatever, but you know, I applaud some of you guys that are here, but at the same time, just because you're here doesn't mean you wanted to be here, or you feel me? And so you can kind of go through the motions. And so let's get away from all of that, and let's see here what God has to say, what he said then, because it helps us to apply that today. So we're going to look at Acts 17. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts 17. We're going to put it on the screen in a minute. But just one little detail that I thought was interesting is that Paul and Silas, well, we, we mentioned last week, they were in the city of Philippi, which years later, we get the letter to the church of the Philippians. And in Philippi, Paul experienced a very embarrassing thing. We talked about that. They stripped him naked and beat him with rods. But, you know, Roman buff soldiers getting beat. You know, some of y'all got beat by mom, and that was something. Could you imagine just some, some grown athletes, you know, some soldiers trained to kill? You know, they're going to they're gonna go for the tender spots every single time. And so they were beaten almost, I mean, pummeled. And then literally the next day or so, they go on this 70-mile walk to the next town. 70 miles bruised and battered. And I... And that, that's just, to me, it's an amazing thing to see just the determination in their heart. Like saying, you know what, whatever come, whatever happens, whatever I'm dealing with, I don't, I got to, you know, if they, anybody had an excuse to not do something, it could have been them. But you know what? They're like, oh, it is what it is. We're on a mission. If I got a limp to get to where I need to go to follow Jesus, I'm limping the whole way. And so I think that was pretty cool. So let's look at what they did. Let's read now. We're going to read the whole thing. It's only nine verses today. Read Acts 17, one through nine. Let's read it all together. After they, which was the missionary team of Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, after they passed through, Amp I never pronounce this right, Amphipolis, there we go, Amphipolis, mine has it like divided in two, so it's weird to read, and uh, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as usual, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus, Paul quotes and says, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you. He is the Messiah, unquote. Says some of them, the Jews in that synagogue, some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of leading women. But, verse 5, but, there's always, when something's always going good, there's always a but there, right? And so that's what happens, right? So, but the Jews, the Jews who didn't believe, they became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them, meaning Paul and Silas, to bring them out into the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers or other Christians before the city officials, shouting this. These men who have turned the world upside down, they have come here too. Oh, and Jason has welcomed them. And they are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying, there is another king, and his name is Jesus. The crowds and the city officials who heard this, these things, they were what? How'd they feel? What was their reaction? Upset. They were upset to hear those words. So after taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. End of story. Okay, wow. That's super inspiring, right? What are we going to get out of that? Well, a lot. So let's look at the first thing, all right? What do we see happening here? So they arrived at the city of Thessalonica. If anybody, if you've read uh, some of the New Testament, that should sound familiar. Uh, Paul writes two different letters to this church later on, First and Second Thessalonians. And so this is the beginning of that church, when it started. And so here, Thessalonica, be brutal and battered, and there, revival breaks out. You saw that? Revival breaks out in this city. But you know what you don't see? Which is interesting. I mean, guys, when we look at how many times God shows up in a city and revival breaks out in the book of Acts, do you notice that it's never the same? It's never the same. And every time Jesus healed somebody, if you've ever read the Gospels, do you know that Jesus never healed somebody the same way? That's an interesting one. Some believe, and I, I would kind of float to this one, in the sense that God did something different every time to kind of keep us guessing so we don't like formulize and strategize and be like, oh, I think we hacked it, God. When Jesus does this, 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 then this happens, and now we can do it without him. You see? 
And revival happens the same way. Ooh, so if this, this, this happens, if, if revival always happens the same way, then we can just kind of manufacture it ourselves. We don't need the Holy Spirit because we have this. So it happens different every single time because we have to rely on God because God is the only one who can produce God results. All right, only one. And so I thought it was interesting because what do we not see here? We don't see signs and wonders. Sometimes Paul would go to a town and God, that's what, you know, that's what's going down. They would do a miracle, some signs and wonders. All this attention is brought up and then boom, people start believing. What we don't see in the Jewish synagogue is signs and wonders. Instead, we see Paul pointing to the ultimate sign and wonder, which was Jesus resurrecting from the dead. The ultimate sign and wonder. That's the only thing you need. And so, but there was an interesting word. What did he do there? He goes to the Jews to tell them their long-awaited Messiah that they have been waiting for for thousands of years. The one that they, they heard that God had promised, I'm going to do something in the nation of Israel that will be a blessing to the nations. And so they're just waiting and waiting and waiting. So no wonder Paul, as usual, Luke says, he would always go to the Jews first because Who's looking for a Messiah? The Jews. And so he's like, you know, so that's good news to them. It's like, guys, you don't have to wait any longer. He's already here. It happened. We're good. And then we can move on to all the other people, right? And so they would always go there. But interesting enough, what do we see this word? What did Paul and Silas, they do? It said that they reasoned with the Jews, pointing to scripture. And the word reason is nothing but just kind of holding a big Q&A. And so what they would do is like saying, guys, we got something to tell you. Let me tell you about Jesus. And oh, and by the way, and now they're, they're, they're running over into Genesis and in the Kings and Chronicles and the prophets and Deuteronomy. I mean, they're, they're hopping all over the Old Testament, showing them, look, 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 this, what we're all familiar with, this was pointing to that. And Jesus is the one. He fulfilled this. He fulfilled that. Paul is doing nothing but exactly what Jesus did. When he rose from the dead, he opened up the Old Testament scripture to the apostles and, and showing them this is what it's been. The story was this all along. Do you guys get it now? And they're like, oh yeah, now we see it. And so uh, Paul is doing the very same thing that everybody, that Jesus showed him to do. Showing, reasoning, look, pointing this and that. And so, and I love that guys. You know, the fact that it was a, a big massive q and A's. I'm sure some of them had, hey, well, what about this? And hey, what about that? Paul says, oh, I got you. Uh-huh. You know, no, I gotcha. And they would always go back to this, which is encouraging for us guys. Listen, as believers in Christ Jesus, um, if you are one, um, if you want to claim to follow a God, it's, I think it's wise to kind of be familiar with the book he wrote. You know, just kind of just saying, you know, I'm just saying, I think it is because there's a lot of people who have a lot of questions about this a lot. And so it's good to know those questions and know this because the answer should always point to not man's wisdom, but God's wisdom. Okay. So we see that's all Paul is doing. He's not coming up with some fancy stuff. All he's doing is that he reasoned with them. And then the scripture says they were persuaded. What that doesn't mean is that he convinced them. And they're like, you know, guys, this guy, I like the way he talks. You know, I like the way he talks. You know, he's, he seems like a good guy. Makes a lot of sense. You know what? All right, I'm on the team. All right, I believe. All right, let's go. Uh, I'm, let me run with that for a little bit. Listen, persuaded doesn't mean they were convinced of something like that, like of a good idea. Because if somebody can talk you into following Jesus, somebody can talk you out of it. That happens all the time. What the word persuaded means, and a better translation actually is they believed. They were persuaded because the Holy Spirit opened up their eyes and they had an experience. Okay, listen, we were talking about an activity earlier today, right? And so I can talk you out of a good idea that you maybe hold on to, right? I can talk you in or talk you out of um, pineapples belong on pizza. I don't know, something like that. All right, <laughs> so I can, I can talk you in or talk you out of that. But I can't talk you out of an experience you've, you've had, right? I mean, if you've had an experience, I can't talk you out of that because you had the experience. You were there. Well, that's exactly what happened here. These, these Jews, revival broke out in the synagogue in a Bible study. That's what happened. That's what happened. Revival broke out in a Bible study and the Holy Spirit opened up their hearts. They believed and had an encounter with God and they were persuaded. And there's one thing before we move on, because this is an important thing, guys, that I think is encouraging for us, encouraging to the church. 
uh, Paul actually in 1 Thessalonians, I'm not going to read it, but in his first letter to the Thessalonians, he reflects on what happened at this moment. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5, he actually says something that he also tells to the Corinthian church in his first letter to them. And he says, listen, I didn't come to you with fancy word and cool talks and, and nice little bottom lines and rhymes and with bars that convince you and move you emotionally. He says, we came with you with words, but with power and demonstrations of power of the spirit. And that doesn't mean that they did this amazing miracle. And see, I told you, you know, believe what I said. You see what I just did? All right. Believe in me. Not like that as a confirmation. It was the belief that, listen, it is my, Paul said, it is my job to open up my, uh, my mouth and to open up God's word. But I know it is the Holy Spirit's job that can open up your mind and open up your heart. And that's the thing. And this is encouraging for us as believers, guys, because it means that you don't have to have every single answer or you don't have to worry about how exactly, even though how we say things is important, but it is not all on you. When you speak out of love and in sincerity, the Holy Spirit does the work. It is our job to illustrate God's word in the way that we talk and act, but it is the Holy Spirit's job to illuminate. We illustrate Holy Spirit illuminates. Guys, you know how freeing it is when I finally figured that out? It took me a minute as a, as a pastor and as a preacher because, Nick, I would stress a lot about, man, obviously I know. I don't want you guys making decisions about God and about life. And, and I'm out here just kind of throwing whatnots and whatevers. And then now you're, you're going to be looking at me in heaven and be like, really? Really? You see what I am, bro? This is, this is you. This is on you, you know, or on the way to, you know, God forbid on the way to hell. That was my big thing. You know, they say, why are you blaming me, man? It was him. I just do whatever he told me to do. I had a struggle with that. I had a big one. But the cool thing is, is listen, I spend a lot of time to make sure what I'm going to say is accurate. But at the same time, I know that my job is not to convince you. I can't do that. It is only the Holy Spirit that can convict you and convince you. And that is so freeing. I've learned to have so much fun in doing that. And so I would encourage you guys to do as well. You just guys let it out. Don't overcomplicate it. I, I love the way Spurgeon says it. He says the gospel is like a caged lion. It doesn't need to be defended. You just got to let it out of the cage. You got to let the lion out of the cage and it will defend itself. And so as believers, guys, I just want to encourage you when you want to talk about your faith and anybody else, listen, you might not have answers to people's questions, but you let out that light that's in you and let the light defend itself, all right? So I, that, that's what we see here. We see revival break out, and then what is the response to revival? Like clockwork, right? All right, here's a move of God, and then now here has to be a move of the enemy to try to, uh-oh, we got to put out this fire. We got to put out this fire. We got to do some damage control. And so we see a riot was the first response to revival, right? So you had the Jews who didn't believe, the Jews who weren't persuaded. They were, interesting, Luke says, jealous. Why? Jealous is important. And man, we, we already found at the very beginning, what were they jealous of? Because first off, could you imagine? Here's these guys, and here's they got this synagogue going, you know, this culture. They got all this going on. And then these two dudes show up. And within a span of three weekends, three Sabbaths, but Paul was actually there for about six months total. In the span of three weekends, their membership has gone down by half. All right. Their offerings have been cut down by half because now they've all joined the, you know, they've all become Christians now. And not only have they lost a bunch of their own, but now a ton of God-fearing Greeks. These were people that were not Jews, but they believed in the Jewish scriptures, and they believed in Jesus too. And then the kicker was the leading women. Did you guys catch that one? That kind of looked a little weird. A large number of leading women. Who were they? These were influencers. These were people in the culture who had power, who had sway. A lot of them were probably wives of politicians. So what are the Jews that didn't believe in Christ, what are they jealous of? They are jealous of how easy, how quick the church in Thessalonica was able to gain numbers, influence, and power. They were jealous of their power. Because now, wait a minute, we've been here for a minute. These guys just showed up. And now they have inroads to politics and inroads to this and inroads to that. Oh, we can't have that. So they, they start that riot, which again, guys, it happens all the time. You got to be aware of this. Every time you want to make a move towards God, you got to be, you got to be on defense. You got to be aware because there's always going to be something that, that the enemy's going to want to try to do to trip you up. And so what do these jealous people do? They attack and accuse. Isn't that what jealousy does? We've all been there. All right. We've all been there. 
Have we all had somebody that was just mad, jealous of you, and all they did was just talk about you? Right? We had them. We do. You know, you already got like four. Some of y'all got to repent right now because you're thinking about them right now and it ain't pretty. All right? You got to repent right now and say, oh, God, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. That image I just had of, uh, no, okay, no, I'm going to, help me. Okay. We all know people that have been jealous of you and have talked bad about you, attacked your character, accused you of things that you've never done. And to be fair, we've all done that too, okay? We've all been jealous of somebody else, and instead of being proud and being, yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, we've all done that. You know what that's called? That's called coveting. Coveting is being so jealous of somebody that you can't be happy for what they have because you're mad you don't have it. You can't be happy for somebody else. That's called coveting. And so that's jealousy. And a jealous heart will always lead you to attack and accuse people. That's what it does. Look what they did here. They attacked some dude named Jason. Now, some of you mean like, who's Jason? We don't know much. All right. The fact that Luke just kind of threw his name out there almost implied that the original audience might have been familiar with this guy named Jason. But there's a guy named Jason. He's a Jew. And uh, we do know that he was an influencer in this church. Notice that they went to Jason's house, right? So that means that Jason must have had a nice house. He must have been, again, if he has a nice house, he has money. He has influence in that because you didn't have a big house unless, um, you know, you got money. And so if, if uh, Paul and Silas were hanging out there, this was probably where the church gathered. The, the church was probably gathering at Jason's house. So it makes sense. Where's the enemy going to attack? At the source. Hey, if we can get Jason and if we can get the house, we're going to cut them out of where they, where they meet and their money and all that stuff. Now, have you ever heard, guys, the church is not a place, it's people? You've heard that one, right? The church is not a place. What is it? It's people. But at the same time, people meet in places, right? And so even though if this building was gone tomorrow, will, this, will our church still be here today? Of course it would be. We just got to meet somewhere else, though, right? And so we would have to meet, though, because the church is the gathering and the sending of the saints. And so here they go, and they're attacking where they gather. Uh, all we know, Jason does pop up in Romans. Paul actually talks about Jason in Romans 16, 21. So we know that Jason is a man of faith. God is using this man, this man in a mighty way in this city. And so they go after Jason, and then when they can't find him, now they accuse the church of what? They said this, they, they accused them of this statement saying, oh, officials, uh, they're saying something. They are saying that there is another king. And what is his name? What did he say his name was? Jesus. By saying there's another king and then saying Jesus, meaning not Caesar. Now, guys, the Jews were slick. They knew what to do. They knew what to do. The Jews knew that Romans aren't going to get involved in petty religious arguments. Oh, but the, Jew, but the Romans... They don't mess around with politics because the Romans live for the glory of Rome and for Caesar. And so they don't like competition. There is no rival to Rome. And so the, the Jews knew, um, hey, these guys over here, they're uh, committing sedition and treason. That's the statement. They were accusing the church of treason, claiming this church is not a religious organization. It is a political one. And look what they're trying to do. And so because remember, they were jealous. They were trying to take them down a couple pegs. That's what they were doing here. And so that's why those people got what? Upset. People was like, whoa, hold on now. Hey, you can believe in whatever God you want, but we don't mess with Caesar. You know, there's no competition here. And so they, they accused him of this. And this is an important thing, guys, that um, I want us to pause for a minute and look at. Because where did this all start? It all started when these group, when these Jews, they became jealous first because they didn't believe. No, it, that's exactly what happened first. They rejected the truth of God. They did not choose. They didn't believe. And as a result, they became jealous. And the jealousy led to something else. And guys, this is something that we must be cautious of because disbelief in God always leads to disorder and disobedience. Disbelief always leads to disorder. It always leads to disobedience. But what are we disbelieving in? The wisdom of God. And what are we trying to do instead? The wisdom of man. And so remember the spiral from before? Here we had these Jews that they refused to abandon their wisdom and their understanding and go for the wisdom of God that was the gospel and the good news. And they stayed here in this free fall. James actually talks about this. I, I think I have, um, let me put, I think I put the, the verses up. If not, I'll read it for you guys. This is found in James. I'm going to read a really short one. James talks about this, about the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. In James 3, 14 and uh, 18, he says this says, but if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, doesn't that sound like jealousy? 
Jealousy is rooted in bitterness and in envy. So if you have a jealousy, a bitter envy, selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Like, you know, don't talk about and be proud of the fact that you're denying the, the truth of God. Such wisdom, such wisdom, which is worldly, manly wisdom, it does not come from above. It is earthly, unspiritual, and look at that last word, demonic. The wisdom of man, to believe and trust in your own wisdom, it is demonic in nature to reject the truth of God. And notice what happens. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder. Another word is confusion and every evil practice. So do you see what I'm saying? The disbelief in God will lead to disobedience. This is why words matter. This is why the truth matters. This is why I know maybe for some of us guys, I don't know if this is boring or interesting to you, but I take moments to define words because truth matters. Because I know if you believe in the wrong thing, all right, it ain't going to lead to the right kind of behavior. And so your belief is what's at the center. It matters. But look what he says here. This is what happens if you believe in the lie. But the wisdom from above, which is God, this is truth. The wisdom from above is first what? Pure. And then look, look at the spiral now when you look at the pure word of God. It is then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. Look at that spiral now when you center your life progressively on the truth of God. Which, which free fall would you guys want to be a part of? The left or the right, you know? The lie or the truth? Obviously the truth. And so we see there, but at the same time, guys, here's what the enemy does. The enemy presents things to us in a way that looks like the truth, feels like the truth, smells like the truth, tastes like the truth, but truth is truth. And a counter-truth is not. In fact, I think the, the best way to imagine this is, imagine God's wisdom, guys, as water. And then imagine the wisdom of this world as sarin. Okay, does that sound familiar to anybody? You guys know, World War II, the Germans created sarin gas during, the, you know, during that time. And they used sarin for a lot of different things. It's a chemical agent. It is considered today to be um, chemical, uh, sorry, no, a weapon of mass destruction. Anybody familiar with sarin gas and the cha gas chambers and different things like that, right? So sarin is a poison. But in its room temperature, do you know what sarin looks like? Water. And guess what? It is tasteless like water. It is odorless like water. It is clear like water. Has every element of what it appears water ought to be. But if you drink sarin, it's going to shut you down and kill you from the inside. But it looks and tastes like water. Throw some ice cubes in there on a hot day. You'll chug that real quick. And you won't know until it's what? Too late. See, that's what the enemy does. They're slick. They're not going to give you, they're not, God's going to present water. They're not going to give you mud. No, they're going to sarin. Hey, it looks like the truth, feels like the truth, talks like the truth, but don't ignore God, believe in this. And when you drink it, it impacts you. It numbs your, your heart. It shapes you, kills us from the inside spiritually. And so guys, we got to be very cautious because the Jews and the, the leading women and all these guys, they drank from the pure water of God and look what happened. And these Jews rejected that, started chugging, you know, spiritual sarin and look what was going down. Disorder, chaos accusations. I think that's ironic in that they create a riot. They turn the city upside down. And then they say, yeah, these guys are turning the world upside down. They've come here too. When they were the ones who turned the city upside down in a mob, you know, interesting how that always works. But anyways, so at, at the result of the riots, then guys, what was the, um, what was the response by the city officials? They were upset, right? You saw that they were upset. And here's what they did. They imposed a restriction. So we had two things. The enemy does two things to counter revival. It was the riot and then there was restrictions. What was the restrictions? I don't know if y'all caught that at the very end there. Um, Jason had a post, had a post bond. Y'all saw that? There was a bond for him that he had to get out. That, there was a restriction to his release. And look at how, bro, I swear the enemy probably thought, I got him this time. All right. I've been watching these guys for a couple of years. I don't know what to do. It seems like I know. And he does a move that he did for the first time. And I think he thought he was pretty successful. So here's the thing. When they posted bond for Jason, it came with a stipulation pretty much saying, listen, Jason, this is what the assumption is that you're allowed to go free and the church is allowed to continue to meet under one condition. Paul and Silas, because we can't find him anywhere. Paul and Silas can't come back. The day Paul steps foot in the city, 
We're taking you and your whole operation down. Now, that's an interesting threat. And Paul later talks about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, listen, you all know. He's, re- again, his first letter back to this church year, a couple of some time later. He says, guys, you know how I had to be rushed out of the city in so quick a time. And I was barely there with you. And, and you know how much I wanted to come back. But quotes, he says, Satan hindered me from coming back. This is what the hindrance some people believe, that this bond was put out. And could you imagine Paul? He was like saying, well, if I step foot in this church, they're going to they're gonna jail everybody. Jason's gone. The house is gone. Where they meet, I can compromise the church if I show up. Does that sound very big? And uh, sounds like, is, is Paul operating in faith or in fear? I think it's a strategy. But here he says this, the devil hindered me. I couldn't go. I couldn't go. And so... With that, guys, the thing that I want us to be aware of is, and we're going to mention this in a second, the thing that I want us to be very aware of is, again, the end. look at how slick the enemy is. Look at how slick. And they'll try to find one way. I was like, oh, this is how you respond now to sin and temptation? All right, I'm going to come at you this way now. Oh, this is what you do? All right, I'm going to come out of this way now. And so this is why we always must be on guard and engage because the enemy will do whatever whatever it takes to get us to keep us to hinder us into growing in our relation with God so they thought they the the enemy must have thought you know what this is how we control this Christian problem let's just keep Paul he's the problem maker he's the one as long as Paul is not in town I think we can control this that was the idea that was the hindrance but guys let me tell you Paul and Jesus himself would say all the time beware Beware of the tactics of the enemy. Beware of false teachers. Beware of this. Beware of that. Guard your heart. Be always on the offense and the defense at the same time. And Paul would say things like, we need to not be ignorant of the devil's tactics. And guys, you know what? This is another reason why it's good to read all of this. Because this whole thing shows us, really, we get to learn the devil's game plan. Because listen, he knows. He has a system. And it works. And he just has it on loop. And it's documented here for us to see. We can see how the enemy thinks and operates and responds and reacts. We have it here. This is so important. And so things that we see, and this is some, I know as a believer, some of y'all can, you know, bro, I never thought about it like that. See, the enemy will try to either infiltrate you with lies or intimidate you on the outside. I'm like, no, you can't talk like that. You can't say that. You can't post that. What are people going to say? What are people going to think? You can lose your job. You can lose this. You may lose a friend. Anybody ever been there before? Have you felt hindered in walking in your faith? Either because of in- intimidation on the outside, right? And then there's the infiltration. You don't know, right? That could be that little lie that you believe in, but the enemy's slick like that. He's super slick. And it's always, listen, this is where it's fought. In the mind. From the beginning, what did the devil do? How, what was the devil's weapon of choice to wage war on humanity and God? What is his weapon of choice? Words. Did God really say? The devil's weapon of choice in spiritual warfare is words. That's why Paul always says, stand firm on the truth. Because listen, if you want to fight a spiritual battle, you can't use earthly weapons. You got to use spiritual ones. And listen, words, especially the words of God, yo, those are some bombs. Those are some bombs and heat-seeking missiles. But you can't fight a lie unless you, you fight the lie with the counter, with the truth of it. And so the enemy's always going to want to get you and to hinder you. And he tries to look how even slick he is. He uses even your own spiritual momentum against you. He will. I was like, oh, you want to be a believer in Christ? If he can't keep you from that, then he's just going to try to keep you swinging on the pendulum. And so you'll go from legalism, which all you're focusing on is rule following and this and holiness and that. And you can go so far to the extreme that you are uh, living according to your own standards, according to your definition. And all you're doing is following rules. And you're thinking you're better than everybody else who are not. And so, you know, some Christians that you have been there, you know, some Christians that are like that. And then if he can't, and was like, well, you know, what? maybe I should ease up on the rules. Then he'll get you to swing on the other side where there's no rules. You can do whatever you want. God's going to forgive you anyways, right? So just go ahead and have fun and throw up a little, uh, you know, my bad. And then God's good. You see, this is the, the pendulum swing that you're on because he doesn't want you to live in that middle ground. No, he wants you to swing from side to side. He'll get you to be intolerant of the truth of God and tolerant of everything else thinking that it's the truth. You'll just keep on swinging over and over again, using your own spiritual momentum against you. Guys, you know what? I haven't given you the history of church doctrine in two seconds. 
That's it. Literally, there would be an error in the church and it would be corrected. And then somebody takes a correction and goes too far. And then now that has to be corrected. And then they take that too far. And then something else has to be corrected. And then it goes too far. Why? Because that's what the enemy does. If he can get us back and forth, it wears us out and it confuses us. It confuses us. So doesn't it make sense when Paul says to the Ephesian church, I just pray that you guys may grow and be rooted and grounded in the love of God so that you are not tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine. It's the truth that anchors you. It's like, uh, then you're here. You want to be here, not, you know, not there. So the truth matters. The truth is important. But so here we see again, all of the, the rioting, the restrictions, the enemy probably thought we got them. Here we go. We've got this contained. Well, let's look. What are the results of the enemy's efforts? Well, if you read 1 Thessalonians, guys, which, by the way, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, very quick read. You can read that very fast. I encourage you to do it. But we know what was the result of the enemy's tactics. Um, I'll just put it this way, guys. It didn't work. It didn't work. Uh, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians in chapter uh, 3, I just mentioned, he says, guys, you know I wanted to be there with you, but the devil hindered me. I physically could not go. So you know what? I sent Timothy, and Timothy went, and he wanted to encourage you in the faith, and he just got back, and I'm writing you this letter because he's telling me about what's happening there. And he was encouraged. Paul was excited to see that despite the rioting, the accusations, the restrictions, the church in Thessalonica was thriving, revival was growing growing still. People were still getting saved. Things, amazing things were happening. And so that just shows us again, whatever the enemy wanted to do was not successful. And then in fact that we see two letters going, first and second Thessalonians, meaning that church is still existing, that church is thriving, the church is hungry for learning more. And so Paul is writing them, encouraging them in the faith. And guys, that's encouraging to us to know that, listen, no matter what the enemy can and desires to do, it will not be successful if we continue to hold on to Christ. You know, there's an Old Testament verse that points us to this. Can we, uh, throw, can we put up on the screen Isaiah 54? This one sounds familiar to some of you if you've read it before. Let's just read quickly Isaiah 54. We're going to read 16 and 17 where it says this. It says, look, I have, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah. I have created the craftsman who blows on the charcoal fire and produces a weapon suitable for the task. What task? Of warfare. All right. And I have created the destroyer to cause the havoc. I've not only created the weapon, I've also created the one who wields it. And then he says in 17, and I'm here to tell you, no weapon formed against you will succeed. And you will refute any accusation raised against you in court. This is the heritage of the Lord's servants, and their vindication is from me. This is the Lord's declaration, period. Now, that's an interesting one. Notice he says, hey, listen, every weapon formed against you is going to, what is it not going to do? It's not going to prosper. It's not going to succeed. But what does that imply, though? Um the weapon is still going to be formed. And for God to judge that it's not successful, that means that that weapon has to be deployed. It has to be applied. That weapon has to be used in order for him to say, it's not going to do the result that it intends. So what does that say? Does that sound very much like Jesus when he says, listen, you will have trouble in this world, but fear not because I have overcome it. Jesus is echoing the same thing. Guys, listen, your, your enemy is going to, you know, it's going to go down. He's going to go down with a fight, but know that I've already, I've already won. I've already overcome. I've already overcome these things. And so, and, and I love even the detail, guys. I've always heard, and usually when it's quoted, we're just verse 17, right? For he has uh, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. But did you see verse 16, the one before, the context of it, how beautiful that was? How can God declare that? Because here's, listen, I'm in charge of the weapons. I'm in charge who wields it. I'm in charge of how, how they're going to use it and the end result. Like God is in charge from the beginning. All of it is. So the enemy does not operate independent of him. And for it to say that li literally nothing that formed against you will prosper is because Christ has already won the definition of this war. Everything, the result has been settled. Now, I'm going to give you, I'm going to borrow Alistair Begg's analogy to kind of paint this picture for you. Because there is a theme. When you look at First and Second Thessalonians, there is a unified theme of the letters. 
And the unified theme is the image of Christ as king. If you read First and Second Thessalonians, you see a theme that Jesus is the reigning and returning king. So did those Jews have a little bit of maybe a little bit of truthism when they said, hey, these guys are talking about another king, his name is Jesus? No, oh, yeah, there was truth to that. Now, they weren't talking about a political movement. That's not what they were talking about. That's what they made it to be. But here's the thing, guys. The Thessalonians and the Thessalonian church understood and they were grounded on the truth that Jesus is the reigning and returning king. And to illustrate that, let me use, again, Alistair Begg's analogy of, imagine a chessboard. Anybody ever played chess? All right, I know my, my kid had took chess before. Anybody like playing chess? Okay, I guess not. All right, so um, I guess you guys are all checkers fans, I guess. And so, all right, chess, interesting game. Now, you guys know the game of chess, right? Where you have to make moves, strategies, because you got to take out the opposing king. Once you take out the king, you win. All right. And so you can say that uh, the devil was in this chess match with God since the garden. And here he's playing mental chess with words, with people, this and that, claiming and trying to, to, to consume. And because he wants the throne. This is why we know that the devil got kicked out because he was jealous of God. He was jealous of the worship that he was getting and the devil was not. He wanted the throne. And so he made a move for the throne. And till this day, the devil is still doing that. The devil is wanting to take out King, God the Father. And so he's making every little move. And then here, he spends all this time dealing with people, dealing with people, dealing with people. And, you know, he can't deal with God. He can't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with God. He only deals with people. And then I wonder what the devil must have thought when he sees God become a person. In Jesus, truly God and truly man. The devil was like, wait a minute. I think game is different now. I, I can't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with God, but I can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with people. And if he became a person, oh, I'm, I'm good at this. I'm good at this. I know how to play this game. And so we see him playing these strategic chess moves in the desert while Jesus is fasting for 40 days. And what is the weapon of choice that the enemy uses? Words. And not just words, the word of God the word of God. And he goes to Jesus, well, Jesus, you know, did, did, did it really say, did you really mean that when you said that? And, you know, and every time he's making moves, Jesus says, got him. Nope. Got it. Got it. No, no. I mean, nothing. And then he's like, all right, well, I can't do that. So, ooh, I got it. So then the devil starts getting the Pharisees and all these religious people. And they constantly try to trip Jesus up with what? with words, with questions. And Jesus all the time, you know, just, you know, ducking and diving all of them. I mean, he, they couldn't get him. He was slippery. Jesus was slippery. Every time they're like, man, this guy's good. This guy's good. Okay. Okay. And then he must've been frustrated, but then God makes an interesting move. He exposes himself on the board. See, this is, these are moments that when you're playing chess, you, you can't be too vulnerable, but there's moves that you can make that can lure in because you want to dictate what the other person does when you play chess by doing certain things. And so here Jesus makes himself vulnerable. God makes himself vulnerable by exposing the sun. And the devil can't help it. He's arrested, tried unfairly, beaten, crucified. At that moment when Jesus held his last breath and he let it out, the devil he, we don't have it documented, but I bet he felt like, you know what? Check. God, I got you in check. That's a move that means that now you are one move away. The king is, you are about to lose the game if you don't make a wise decision next. That's what check means in chess. And so on the cross, he takes out the sun. He must have thought, I got you. Check. I'm almost there. Check. But here's the thing. The devil didn't know that the king had one more move in him. He had one more move in him and he didn't see it coming. And three days later, it took three days when God made that move. And when Christ, when God made that move on the three days later and Christ raised from the dead, now God responds with checkmate, checkmate, done. It is over. What the devil thought he was about to win. Oh, he walked into the trap and God, the father on the cross when gee, the, you know, the, the stone was rolled away. And when Jesus probably stepped out, <coughs> checkmate. All right, you're over. It's done. It is over. The thing with checkmate guys is that the game is done. And then here's the thing. When you're in checkmate in chess, 
It's literally it. The game is over. You can't remove it. And what's amazing about that is this, that when you're in checkmate and you're on the losing side, it doesn't matter what move you make. Oh, well, what if I move here? Still checkmate. Well, what if I do that? Checkmate. What if I do this? What if I do that? Checkmate. There are moves to be made on the board, but every single move will not reverse the result that it's over. And so I say that, guys, because ever since the cross, Christ declared checkmate to the enemy. But here's the thing. The enemy got moves to make. There's moves still to be done, but it will not prosper. It will not succeed because Christ has already succeeded. So that's why Christ can say, no, ma- no weapon formed against you shall prosper. No weapon formed against you prosper. It doesn't mean that you'll never get sick. It doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen to you. It means that in the end, it cannot reverse the results of the cross and the grave. It's over. Jesus is the reigning and returning king. That, that is the one thing, guys, that we need to focus on. I mean, the application for today, guys, is just that. Is my prayer, I'm here to illustrate, illustrate that Jesus is the reigning and returning king. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit helps you to illuminate that. Because if you abide in that truth, if you abide in the fact that Jesus is, is the reigning king, then it doesn't matter what the enemy is going to throw at you. Even in your difficulties, like what we saw last week, there's going to be reason in your heart to praise God in the midst of your circumstance, in the midst of all, because you know, I don't care what it looks like now. I know what the end looks like. I don't care what I'm going through right now. I know what I'm going to go to. I know where I'm going. And God, his results will not be reversed. And so when you have that understanding that Jesus is the reigning king, abide in that. You let that sink into your soul. It's going to shape you. That's going to transform you. That's going to give you a reason to to rejoice and to pray and to praise God and be thankful in your circumstances because of what he has won for you on the cross. But there's another one, though. Can you just not only, could you imagine if you can abide in the fact that he is the reigning king, but the last one is the returning king. How often do you ever think about that? First and, Thessalonians, first and Second Thessalonians, um, this Thessalonican church, they were obsessed with Jesus' return. So if you read First and Second Thessalonians, Paul always talks about the, 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 the day of the Lord and, and the rapture or this or that. He's always talking about this to this church because that this church was so anxious. They believed with all of their heart, Jesus is coming back. And w- so tell us, what do we look for? Because we can't wait. We know he is the reigning king and we believe he's the returning king. And so guys, my, my challenge for you, if you're a believer in Christ, you believe he's a reigning king. Great. Do you how well and do you focus on the fact that he is also returning? Returning implies we will all give an account for how we've lived, right? If you know, which we do this, right? I know my my kids, and I've done this when I was a kid too. You know, ever been left home alone? And you know mom and dad are going to show up again. So you just can't do whatever you want because you know they're going to show up and you're going to have to answer for why is that broken? Where's this thing? What's going on over here, right? Why is that on fire, right? And so, right, you're going to have to answer for that. And so listen, if you can abide on the truth, that Jesus is not only the reigning king, but he is the returning king. That truth, the more that sinks and spirals into your soul, that is going to shape you, mold you, motivate you to live, to act, to think differently according in line with God's will. So what we think about, guys, is important. This church held on to that. And despite the difficulties that they went through, we can see here that it... They continue to grow by the grace of God. And the same thing works for us today. The same thing works for us today is that if we abide in that truth, and that's what I'm going to challenge us today is that how well, because the enemy wants you to abandon the fact that God is reigning. Because if the enemy can get you to abandon the, the, the truth that God is the reigning king, then here you are, you submit yourself to a yoke of a defeated foe. It's for what reason? If you think he's not, if you don't think that Christ is reigning, that means that you put more power on the enemy that he does not have. He does not have. And now you apply that to him. And if you feel like he's not the returning, if you can abandon, if the enemy can abandon or get you to abandon that he's a returning king, then you're going to live your life kind of carelessly, haphazardly, whatever, however you want. But no, if we abide in those truths, it marks us, it shapes us like nothing else. This is what God has done. This is who he is. 
And it makes a big difference, guys, in our life. And so in the same way that Paul, in the same way that Paul quoted and said this to the Thessalonian church, I'm going to say it to this, this, our church here today. And that this Jesus that I am proclaiming to you, he's not just another king. This is not just another God. He's not just another option to make you feel better about yourself and get all the warm fuzzies and feelings, all right? He's not just another something. Jesus is the only King of kings and Lord of lords, mighty one who has won our victory on the cross, paid the penalty of our sins so that you don't have to. He is a generous God, a loving God, a compassionate, patient one. This Jesus that I am proclaiming to you has won and had holds in his hand the keys of hell itself and nothing and no one can snatch those keys out of his hands. The result has been defined. This is the Jesus that I'm proclaiming to you. This is the Jesus that if you claim to believe in, and I pray that we can abide in this truth this week, later today, and for the rest of our lives, because if we do, Jesus says it will produce fruit in you. If we abide in the truth of God, and it says, listen, there is no other king but Jesus. There is no other king like Jesus. And there is nothing else better to do than to live life with Jesus. And we get to praise him because he made it possible by his grace. Listen, let's not get it twisted. Okay, Jesus is not just your homeboy. All right, I've seen the shirts. Jesus is not just your savior. Jesus the Holy Spirit, God, not just your Father, the Holy Spirit's not just your, your friend, your um, companion, your comforter. God is king. He is a king. And all kings ask for loyalty and for you to follow. But like I just said, Jesus is unlike any other king. First off, he's not a liar because everything that the world offers to you and especially the lie of, hey, you can rule your own life. You will end up enslaved. And Jesus has come to set us free. He is not one that sends his pawns ahead. No, Christ leads the charge. And when we follow him, we find 